We've been claimed in the waters. This is the womb of rebirth. It's regenerating us, gestating us for new life in Christ. And we're drowned to this old way of life. The sin is gone and we're being, you know, raised up and refreshed, rehydrated in the life of the spirit. That's what animates me. Welcome to the Renovare Podcast, a place for honest conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and my guest today is Eric Peterson. Eric's a pastor and author living outside of Spokane, Washington, and he has some really helpful insights into a practice I rarely hear folks talk about, baptism. I think you'll be surprised by the profound implications Eric offers for how this sacrament can transform the way we see and treat one another. I have a special heart for those in pastoral ministry. It can be one of the most difficult and lonely of vocations. And every year, a staggering number of pastors leave ministry altogether in a state of brokenness, emotionally and spiritually depleted. One of the many challenges our leaders face today is a growing pressure to succumb to the infestation of corporate values that can sometimes dominate religious culture. It's not uncommon for a pastor to find themselves having to live under the weight of worldly models of success. Models that often stand in direct conflict to the kingdom values we find in the life and ministry of Jesus. To be with people, to walk alongside others in a pastoral context, a servant shepherding role. Many find this way of doing ministry isn't even an option. And tragically for a growing number, this way of doing ministry is not even on their radar. And so, I'm always drawn to hearing from those in church leadership who found a sustainable way to avoid the inevitable dehumanizing that comes with our obsessions of attendance, buildings, and cash. Those who live into a Jesus way. On my bookshelf, I keep a ready supply of one book that I give away to pastors. It's Eugene Peterson's memoir, simply titled The Pastor. And it's one of the most helpful books I've encountered that cast a sustainable vision for living well into pastoral ministry. I spent some time with Eugene a few months before his passing. I asked him a number of questions about his life and work, and this interview is a response to one of his answers. Eric, a few months before uh, your parents passed, I was with them at uh, Lady Lodge in Texas. So I was having lunch with them, and I I was talking to your dad about his book, The Pastor, a book I I really like. And and somewhere in that conversation, I asked him a question of, what are you seeing in the church that encourages you? Or, you know, who's doing this well? And he got talking about you, and he just lit up. You know, my son, Eric, he's really got it. And, And he was so 
proud of you, if, if I can tell you that, assume you know, but it just uh, has been on my mind to ask you about that and a little bit about just being a pastor and maybe some connections or ties, things that you picked up from your, from your father. Well, thank you for sharing that. He was generous in his affection and expressions of pride. I, in so many ways, I just feel like I fell into this kind of through, I mean, it feels like I came in through the back door because it was not apparent that this is what I should be doing. As you may know, I come from a family of pastors. There are a whole bunch of them over the last four generations. And so as I was growing up, that was sometimes the the question posed, are you going to follow in your <laughs> those footsteps? And that just seems so cliche to me, like going into the family business. How original is that, you know? <laughs> so I feel like I kind of got tricked into it. I took a couple of theology classes when I was at Whitworth University. Um, but up to that time, I was, I mean, I, I had kind of blue collar stuff on on my mind. I love tinkering with engines and I worked at a hardware store and I loved just doing outdoor kinds of things. But I had this magnificent professor in Dale Bruner, who, along with some of the reformers, Calvin and Luther in particular, just lit a fire in me. And I got really interested in theology and through those three, primarily, Bruner, Luther, and Calvin learned, I think, to think theologically about the world. And that just felt like this huge foundational gift. But it wasn't, in my mind, leading me to pastoral ministry. It was, at that time, leading me to think about food, uh, missionary work. Tropical oh. agriculture was the, was the field I was planning to pursue. I was going to go to the third world and grow food. <laughs> <laughs> So I spent a couple of years after graduating as a carpenter and built houses here in Spokane. And then uh, kind of inexplicably, even now I can't really explain this. I had this really clear sense of call to go to seminary and it was clear which one to go to. I only applied to one, was accepted and spent three years uh, doing that work, thinking all the time that I would put that diploma in the file cabinet because I was still too young, too inexperienced, not mature enough to do what I'd watched my family members do so well for so many years. I just kept looking at them thinking I could never do that or maybe in 20 years. But right around the 11th hour, uh, metaphorically speaking, of seminary, uh, that changed and it became really clear that this is who I, who I was really what I was made for. And it happened through a series of circumstances, but the result was I realized, oh, I'm a pastor and I'm ready. I remember writing this in my journal because I would come home from campus most days. Uh, we lived off campus in married student housing, and I was just having a hard time staying motivated to do some of the hardcore stuff, like learning the pronominal suffixes of Hebrew nouns, when I didn't have that clear sense of, I'm going to be a pastor and use this in exegesis. So it was a slog. Uh, and it was a time when I experienced the silence of God. But I also did not feel free to leave. I knew that that would be an outright act of disobedience. 
So uh, adjacent to these apartments where we lived was the Delaware Raritan Canal, uh, just outside of Princeton. And this is where, you know, Washington is, did his famous midnight march. And I would just walk that towpath along the canal and kind of pray these uh, sometimes inquisitive, sometimes angry prayers. Like, what am I doing here? What do you want with me? Uh, and sometimes it was, you know, it was amped up to what the hell do you want with me? <laughs> uh, I was getting, it was just a very frustrating time. A lot of just vocational uncertainty and angst and as is probably typical of a 20 something. Anyway, in my journal, after all this had become clarified and this thing that is the pastoral vocation that I was resisting for so many years, when it suddenly became this prize, this beautiful thing that I wanted to run toward with all my energy, uh, I wrote in my journal, I think it's this line that I recall, I wrote, the prayers of lament along the Delaware Raritan Canal have been transformed into a song of songs. Mm. And so I spent the first seven years of my ordination as an associate pastor just delighting in that work. I was an associate didn't have the responsibilities of the administrative side of things. So it was a lot of pastoral care, some preaching, a lot of visitation, did a lot of weddings and funerals, a little bit of teaching. And I think on one hand, I can count the number of bad days I had in seven years. Wow. It was just really delightful. It was a healthy congregation. My colleague was generous. So it, it became this really formative environment for finding my voice and identity and then was called to the uh, church I'm presently serving to organize a new, it was a new church development in 1997. And I've been here ever since. And I probably don't have enough digits on my body to count the number of bad days I've had. <laughs> <laughs> well, 23 years, is a, it's a while. <laughs> um, but it's a different environment. You know, when you go from a church of, you know, it's 45 years old and it's healthy and 600 members to nothing. I mean, I was, I was given a 10 acre field of weeds and some doors to knock on. And, and there were some core people that were kind of preemptively committed. So that was helpful. There was a good group of leaders in place. And that I realized looking back on it was essential because sometimes uh, when you're starting a new church, you end up getting people from other churches that are disgruntled about what's going on there. <laughs> And so you get people that are angry and they've got their own agendas. And that wasn't the case at all here. This is a core group that came from a mother church and uh, they were sad about leaving, but felt called to do so. That's probably a long answer to the question, but that, that sense over the years has at key moments been kind of punctuated for me, this clear sense, this is what I was made for. You know, just knowing that, uh, can get you through a lot of hard. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was pretty young. This is a childhood prayer of mine, 10, 11 years old. I, I remember, you know, praying something like, whatever you want with me, I'm, I'm yours. And so, you know, I didn't sign up for fun or enjoyable. I signed up for meaningful. And I've learned that those two don't always go together. If you want to be in something meaningful, it it's going to be hard at times. Mm-hmm. What do you see as the role of a pastor? Well, I think it may vary from person to person, but for me, 
the vocational clarity is I've been given a congregation to attend to and to keep God focused, God attentive and God responsive. And I do that primarily through these time-tested gifts of word and sacrament. Uh, the scriptures as they are, you know, written, as they're proclaimed, as they are enacted or sealed in the sacraments and these sacramental expressions of, of gifts, the kind of the, the tangibleness of the incarnate God who's with us, those are potent gifts. And there are other ways that they get manifested, but those are core. And when I think about how I will be judged for my work as a pastor, I think I'll feel confident going before that judgment seat if there's that clear sense that I was diligent in keeping this little congregation focused on the presence of God in this world and responsive to the promptings of the Spirit of God. In some ways, it's that simple. Of course, it's it's nuanced and it's more complicated than that. But that's, I think, fundamentally what I'm here for. That's what gets me out of bed. It's a rare day when I think, I don't know, I'm not sure what I should do today. It's usually pretty clear. And oftentimes, that's simply creating some space. I find that space, that is an uncrowded calendar and just some silence, solitude, it's always a fertile environment. Something always happens there. It's a great phrase, a fertile environment. It, it's true. These things, something happens there when we carve out space for silent solitude, study. What, what are some of the, I don't know if I want to say pitfalls or some of the things that you've been intentional to do or accidentally done that has helped you to find life in this work and have some longevity with the congregation? I suppose the, the pitfall for most of us in this work is the desire or the striving for success. And in a new church development environment, you know, planting a church, these don't always go well. And there are lots of pitfalls, lots of ways that they can kind of blow up or fall apart. And I, you know, I was aware, I was sort of given to know, this feels like a grace. I was given to know that I was in danger of, tempted to reify people, that has just used them for the end or the means, as means to this end of getting a church to a, a point of, you know, critical mass and size, you know, sustainability, all that sort of thing. Just a, being aware of that was a little bit frightening to me. And accompanying that about the same time was, for me, a getting reacquainted with sacramental theology, with a focus on baptism in particular. And what I learned, what, what was helpful to me is that if I, if I related to people as the baptized, that's a sacred ID. And... I'm much less prone to abuse the relationship or do damage to the person if I see them through kind of that the lens of the Imago Dei, the children of God. They reflect the image of God, as we all do. And so that, that was really helpful to me. And I mean, we were working pretty hard for those first seven, eight years, but that became a, an emphasis 
And by year 10, you know, if someone were to ask, you know, what's unique about this church? Most people would say, our pastor talks about baptism way too much. (laughs) So it's been helpful for me, but I think as a congregational experiment, it's bearing fruit because other people now relate to one another as the baptized. It becomes part of the vernacular at some point. And uh, a prayer chain message that came through recently, you know, said something like, you know, thanks for praying for my Aunt Betty. She completed her baptism last night. Hmm. That's just kind of worked its way into the congregation. Well, after about, what, 18, 18 years, 18, 19 years, I had an opportunity to pursue an advanced degree And I just did the work around baptism. And it was really helpful for me after all these years of just sort of doing it on the fly, on my back pocket, to just have this concentrated period of time to study and kind of work this out from the patristic writings all the way through the scriptures, church history. That felt like a huge gift. It's it's sort of funny when people congratulate you for, you know, earning a degree. And I just, I said, wow, that felt like a gift to me that I got (laughs) to do that. So I've been working around baptismal theology for two decades, and I can't find the bottom of this well. It's so rich. Hmm. Um, it continues to to be really meaningful to me. You're not just talking about the act, but kind of all that encompasses and what that means? Precisely. Yeah. And that's part of my thing is, so with, with communion, the Lord's Supper, you know, we do that more frequently, right? Regularly. With baptism, it feels like it's this one-time sacrament where you do it at some point in your life, and it's like, you know, been there, done that, got wet, got the T-shirt or the certificate, <laughs> and it feels like graduation to people, like I accomplished something. It's, it's done. Put that away. And what I've tried to do is to emphasize the lived nature of baptism, to describe it as a lifelong what I call a two-step dance. We're continually turning from sin, renouncing evil. It's this act of repentance, and we're turning toward Jesus, um, trusting in his grace and love. That's the two-step dance of repentance, of, of the baptized way of life. And so we reaffirm baptismal covenantal questions with some frequency partly to emphasize this lived nature, partly just to reestablish that sacred ID, because the world, at least in North America where we live, it wants to define us primarily by what we can produce and consume and acquire. And baptism really just turns all those consumeristic notions on their ear and says your inherent value is based on the fact that you've been created in the image of God. And God sent the Son, and you're loved. That's everything. That's that's where your identity and your purpose emerge. Imago Dei. That's the phrase, right, that you said earlier? Yeah, the image of God. Um, yeah. I think the whole notion of redemption is a recovery of the Imago Dei that got distorted in the garden. Part of what we're doing in pastoral work is telling people who they really are. And helping them to live into that identity and out of that sense of purpose. I've been struck that I think with maybe one exception, the Apostle Paul, at least in his letters, addresses those churches as the saints. Hmm. 
So, you know, we have nowadays we kind of have this sophisticated hagiography, right? We have, a, we have a process by which someone gets canonized and becomes a real saint. But that's not the New Testament view. It's the baptized are uh, the saints, because that's an identity. That's not a behavioral thing. It's not you, you have to earn certain points or you know perform in a certain way in order to gain God's approval. It's what God says about us that matters. And so you start there. You say, I'm a saint. I'm a child of God. And live out of that rather than try to do something by way of achievement. Jesus get baptized? Yeah, that's a million dollar question. The one person in the world that didn't need to insisted on it. <laughs> I'm still working on that question, actually. But I think among the reasons is that he's so incarnated our humanity. He was all in. He did not immunize himself from any part, any aspect of our humanity especially the suffering part. Again, I don't have a full answer to that. I'm not sure I ever will, but I think it's partly just to be in abject solidarity with our humanity. He's with us in the flesh. But it also, for us, his baptism echoes for us his experience in terms of the voice of God expressing profound pleasure and the accompaniment of the Holy Spirit. Those are profound moments. And I think it's important for us to hear echoes of that from the Jordan, to hear God saying, you are my beloved daughter, beloved son. I couldn't be more pleased with you. You bring me <laughs> such pleasure, pride of my life. You know, just that kind of that gushing sense of, oh, I just love you so much. And that's before Jesus did a blessed thing. <laughs> right? You know, in Mark's gospel, I mean, all, really all of them, but in Mark's gospel in particular, that's the first we really hear of, of Jesus. At, it's his baptism. And so I just think it's profound that there's no way that you can interpret that as this is God's response to Jesus being a good son. It's, he, you start there. You start kind of this with this preemptive pleasure. So again, the, the, the identity is I'm a child of God. I'm loved. God's pleased with me, and I haven't done anything yet. So I'm, I'm free to live out of that and not be afraid that God's going to withdraw that pleasure because it's not based on what I do or don't do. Those words are for us too? Precisely. I think that's the intention. Not solely, but I do believe that's a big part of why Jesus was baptized and why it's a recorded event. It's why we celebrate baptism of the Lord in liturgical calendars. How has some of this worked itself into your writing? Well, I, I wrote a book on it. It's called Wade in the Water, following the sacred stream of baptism. And that's essentially the work that I did in this doctoral program that I kind of reworked for a, a more popular audience. But I would say that to some significant degree, it, I mean, it's just always there. This is, this is the sacramental background to my pastoral mindset. I'm concerned that sometimes people are just going to get tired of it. <laughs> and so I'm finding more sort of covert ways to use the language. I don't want to overdo it, but I just feel like it's always pretty much there. 
This is helpful, Eric. I've I've always thought of baptism as I grew up Quaker, so we you know there was some theology around that. But my, my own experience wasn't a positive one. It was just I, I don't know that I got it, or like it didn't necessarily you know mean anything. But this is really helpful. What would you say to groups that really f- kind of focus on the act as opposed to what its implications for how we see each other and how we are? Yeah, I have no interest at all in the methodology of administering the sacrament, whether it's aspersion or sprinkling or immersion. <laughs> I'm coming out of the Reformed tradition. I'm a fan of baptizing once because I think that makes a, a statement that once is enough. When God says, yes, you're mine, that doesn't need to be repeated. It needs to be remembered. I'm a fan of the one time, whether you remember it or not, whether it was a good experience or not, it's efficacious because it reflects what God is doing, what God is saying about us. And we simply need to remember that to come to a deeper understanding of that and to metabolize it in our lives so that we can live out of that sacred ID. I mean, this is one of the frustrations that I have when studying the history of the church. I mean, we've, we've got 2,000 years of history, and so many of the denominations that we have, the schisms that have developed, the controversies that we've gone through, have been around <laughs> things like, what's going on in baptism or what's going on in the supper? I just feel like we've gotten so concerned or preoccupied with some of those, they're not superfluous details, but some of the details around what it should look like or even what it means that we've missed the point. Yeah. And so I've intentionally stayed away from those points of controversy because I don't think ultimately they really matter. I'm more interested in understanding and conveying the sense of meaning. What does this mean? What is God doing here? What does it mean to be a part of the family of God uh, that we've been claimed in the waters? This is the womb of rebirth. It's regenerating us, gestating us for new life in Christ. And we're drowned to this old way of life. The sin is gone and we're being you know, raised up and refreshed rehydrated in the life of the spirit. That's what animates me. These other things that the church has gotten bogged down in just seems really unfortunate and kind of silly. I don't think that's the stuff for which we will be judged ultimately. That was Eric Peterson. His book about baptism is titled Wade in the Water, Following the Sacred Stream of Baptism. And recently, he's published a work titled Letters to a Young Pastor, Timothy Conversations Between Father and Son. After this interview, Eric and I went on to record another one about his parents. We'll air it later in the coming months. Our next release marks the 200th episode of this little podcast. And we have something very special planned. I've been holding this one for a while, and I can't wait to share it with you. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast. This work is made possible by donations from people like you. You can support this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org slash donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort 
offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find articles and other resources at our website, renovare.org. This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. Other music is by Lee Rosevere. And until next time, be well, friends. Be well.